In every household, in every group, in staff canteens, in taxi journeys, at the breakfast table, over dinner, on mobiles, on social media, on WhatsApp, with family, with friends, with acquaintances, with colleagues, mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, wherever you go, on everyone's lips, Belfast, the trial. Welcome to the story of the Belfast trial. My name is Paddy McKenna and I'm joined by two people who have been eyewitnesses to the often emotive and emotional proceedings inside the Belfast Crown Courtroom 12. Joe Reporter, Rosanna Cooney and you saw Court's correspondent, Frank Grenny. Thanks for joining us, guys. Morning. Thank you. Good morning, yes. Uh, later on, we'll be joined by Joe's Dion Fanning to discuss some of the issues of consent and culture that this case has thrown up. Rosanna. We're less than 24 hours since the moment the foreman of the jury stood in the Belfast trial and read out the verdict. Five minutes before that, a rumour spread throughout the courtroom that after a relatively short deliberation, a verdict was imminent. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think it was expected at all how quickly it would come. It's definitely a surprise to all of us because everyone had kind of was occupying different spaces within the courtroom at the time. The families, the defendants were all downstairs in the canteen and that became their space during the short deliberation period. And then it came over the loudspeaker, everyone go to courtroom 12 for the Jackson trial. And I wasn't sure, I don't think anyone really predicted that this could be it, but then it kind of went around this rumour, this is it, this is the verdict. And from there, it was so quick. And so the defendants filed into the dock where they've been for the last, or where they were for the last nine weeks. And... Um, and then they stood. The judge said, there's been a note handed to me from the, jur- from the jury and um, that they've reached a unanimous verdict. And that immediately set everyone off that it, so quickly these 11 people could come to a unanimous verdict. And, and so the guys stood and faced the judge dead on and they didn't move and they had their hands sort of like clasped, clasped in front of them like they were at mass. And it was this not guilty rang out six times in the courtroom over and over again and I think it I think it's fair to say that after the first not guilty which was Jackson's people knew how it was going to go From your point of view Frank obviously the levels of interest in this case You've, you're a veteran of, of covering um, courtroom proceedings did you anticipate as you on that first day you journeyed up to Belfast just how huge the interest was going to be? No, I, I knew given the high profile of the first two defendants, Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding, obviously I knew there would be a lot of attention and I spoke with my editor about covering it and initially we decided that I would go up and cover the um, opening address from the prosecuting barrister Toby Hedworth and I would sit in on the complainant's evidence and then I would pick it up at the later stages. It was initially set down for five weeks and we didn't feel that we could justify um, having somebody up there for five weeks because obviously there's plenty happening in the courts in Dublin to keep my, myself busy too. And ordinarily as well, and we spoke about this over the phone at great length, um, these trials have peaks and troughs. They have uh, flashpoints. They have points where everybody's interested and everybody wants to hear from a certain witness. And then there are other witnesses that mightn't be as as uh, as interesting to the uh, public, for, for example. And then you might come back after they've finished giving evidence. But certainly uh, we knew from very early on that there was a huge interest in every second of what was happening in that courtroom. And it was obviously unique because of the differences in ways the way courts are um, uh, the way court trials take place up in Belfast in the sense that these people could be identified the frenzy that was around the case wouldn't have been the case in Dublin because they wouldn't have been identified throughout the trial process 
And we'll come back to that a little bit later on because obviously Joe McVeigh took his uh, the opportunity post trial to talk about the differences between how uh, this trial would have run in the south and how potentially that in his eyes would have been a better scenario. But before all that, let's go right back because this is the story of the Belfast trial. Um, obviously, a marathon trial by any by any stretch. Um, Frank, I'll take you back to week one. This trial began with a bang. The process is the exact same down Dublin in that sense, whereby the prosecuting barrister uh, throws the first shot. He, um, it's not evidence and the jurors are always told that it's not evidence but the opening address is just the prosecutor's first words to the jury to get the ball rolling uh, essentially and Toby Hedwards um, opening address was very detailed it went on for some time and kindly he gave us a transcript of it which was very helpful and it was something that I went back to time and time again over the duration of the trial um, that doesn't necessarily happen down south there are opening addresses but sometimes the details and the overview of the evidence and it is just an overview. This is what the prosecution's case will be. These are the witnesses that you will hear from. He went into far more detail than I would have heard in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin, for example. We were spoiled for choice and it was it was jaw-dropping stuff. Some of the allegations that were being made were absolutely sensational. Um, from a news point of view, we knew at that point, and I don't mean to be crude, but the text messages, for example, the explicity of them, the, the fact that the, this was an insight into this lads culture the way they were speaking about the woman in such derogatory terms um, we knew at that point that this was going to be a trial that would hold the attention of the nation uh, throughout and indeed it did There was a callousness Rosanna to those exchanges that, that shocked a lot of people what was the impact of the language at that stage on the court? Um, every time there was something graphic like that I think it kind of you could feel the atmosphere in the courtroom change and you were sitting with the the parents, the brothers, sisters of all the defendants and they're hearing these text messages, these, like it's such an exposure of the mindset of these guys at that time they're so immediate, it's an instant communication of the night before and I mean everyone does that, you you trawl over the night before, you're exchanging jokes about it but this was suddenly criminal, potentially like incriminating evidence about what was going on and like I think as well in the prosecution's opening statement there was messages from that were read out about from her account as well so a selection of them and she's giving this really also very detailed account of what she said happened to her and it's it's explicit she goes by step by step what she said happened to her and then it's the contrast and it's the complete dichotomy between the two and you're reading it almost side by side and that's how, how the prosecution I think presented it was like this and then this and you're seeing how two, how the same event was potentially perceived entirely different, differently by these diverging accounts. Uh, Frank, I would ask you, um, if the WhatsApps weren't part of the trial, how different do you think public perception would be now? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I suppose the jurors were warned um, on several occasions about how they should treat these WhatsApp messages. Um, the judge, for example, said that this could be just boys' chatter, you know, that sometimes boys, lads, after a night out are bragging, they may exaggerate. And that was essentially when the four defendants took the stand. That was their claim, was that they didn't really mean what they were saying, that they were just bragging, that they were exaggerating. And they each said that they regretted some of the text messages that were sent. But I think if we didn't have the text messages... Um, take for example the text messages exchanged between the complainant and Rory Harrison they were a key part of the prosecution's case and I recall um, Toby Hedworth saying 
that uh, Mr. Harrison would be portrayed as a gentleman, but that this apparent gallantry uh, would be misguided, and that what he was actually trying to do was um, was back up his mates, protect their reputations, make sure that once she didn't make a complaint, or if that she if she did, that their stories would would uh, refute that. Now he obviously denied all those allegations, and he was acquitted accordingly uh, yesterday. But without those um, text messages, yeah, I don't think it would have been the same trial. But they gave us an insight that we maybe wouldn't have got otherwise. These were squeaky clean boys that had represented their country, that had represented Ulster, very well educated mm. uh, men, um, no doubt about it. All went to good schools. That was spoken about at length. Charity work, whatnot. But then you got an insight into how they interact with their friends and and how they actually think about women. And it was quite offensive and very derogatory. And that gave an insight that we wouldn't have got otherwise. Like, obviously, these four men have been found not guilty of the charges against them. But, you know, the courtroom of public perception remains and the language that was used. Uh, Rosanna, you wrote a piece where you basically laid out the conversations on text message and on WhatsApp on the night in question between the defendants and also between the complainants and her friends. A lot of them happening, overlapping. Uh, You know, both conversations happening at exactly the same time and the tone so radically different. In one group, uh, the Jacomi group, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's Jacomi, right, okay. So this is a group that involves um, Paddy Jackson and uh, Blaine McElroy and And Stuart Holding and Stuart Holding okay and the conversation they're talking about how much of legends they all were mention of uh, spit roast and then the casual abridgement or abridging of that to spit uh, by Paddy Jackson so there was that conversation and then there's the harrowing account where the complainant is relaying to her friend and her some of her other friends what has happened on the night out um it's it's incredible to see them laid side by side. When you put them together, the you can see why the reaction in the last 24 hours has been so vociferous. Yeah, definitely. Because I think what it does is it's a imme- like it's immediate evidence, and it's their account, and that's what it is. And I think a big part of it. And just to come back, what you were saying, Frank, as well on like the character witnesses that Jackson brought on and that Harrison he brought someone on to I think a large part of their function as well was to like to diminish what those WhatsApps were because they're saying oh, like uh, one character witness for Jackson said these are like he's so polite to women and I always see him interacting so well but then you have his actual words and his, what is an insight into his attitude which does seem quite derogatory in a lot of it but Just on that I think one of the most striking contrasts for me was the difference in text messages that Rory Harrison sent to Blaine McElroy compare those with the ones that he sent to the complainant after um, very gentlemanly like walking her up to her driveway to her front door texting her afterwards uh, chin up you wonderful woman Mm -hmm. sending her a link to a song when he was back in his own place um, because he knew that she was upset and wanted to comfort her texting her the next day again to to see how she was contrast those with the messages that he sent to Blaine McRoy when he talks about um, going upstairs more flutes than the 12th of July Mm -hmm. and talking about um, how the scenes last night were hilarious and things like that and then the character witness that was called on his behalf was a retired nurse 
nurse who gave this wonderful tale of how he helped her bring her bags onto a bus. Herself and her daughter were getting a bus and having some difficulties in, in getting uh, bags onto it. I just thought that the text messages that, that Rory Harrison had sent to the lads, and he is just one of the lads at the end of the day as well. I've no doubt that he's a good guy and that he does. He is a good Samaritan. I saw him at one point, one of the very rainy days up in Belfast. I noticed one of the solicitors walking um, uh, away from the courtroom and her brolly was broken and she was getting drenched and Rory Harrison went over interestingly with a merchant hotel umbrella and he put that over her head and he took the soaking so I've no doubt that he is a good guy but he's also one of the lads and we saw the two sides to his personality throughout the proceedings We will return to some of the the aspects of that culture a little bit later on in this podcast I'm going to leave this section of the conversation around the Belfast trial with just um, a transcript from Rosanna's article about Anatomy of a Night Out where you've laid out the text messages so at 12.15pm the complainant responds to Harrison about the music he was going to send her to ask her what song it was and then says to be honest no I know you must be mates with those guys but I don't like them and what happened was not consensual which is why I was so upset again thank you for taking me home that was really appreciated and Rory Harrison replies five minutes later at 12.20 Jesus and then I'm not sure what to say then there is a series of exchanges between Harrison and McElroy which were subsequently deleted and at 1.05pm so that is 50 minutes later from the original text message Harrison says I have to pick up my dog at 2.30 and then mate the scenes last night were hilarious to which McElroy replies it was a good night I loved it and Harrison then says walked upstairs and there were more flutes than the 12th of July um, we'll move on to another seismic moment from that week the first week Frank the moment the Irish rugby captain entered the courtroom Rory Best was there uh, he later gave his reason uh, reason I was there it's on record I was called as a character witness and I was advised that it's important that I get both sides of the story so I could make an informed decision about that he was never called as a character witness in the end no, but in fairness to him um, and the defence uh, team, uh, Paddy Jackson, I think, referred to him as um, as, as his character uh, witness. In the opening, when the jury was selected, um, they were given a list of um, witnesses and they were told if they knew anybody on this list that they, um, that they shouldn't sit on the trial. And the defence barrister then representing Paddy Jackson took to his feet and told them they may, and that's a very important word, they may hear from the following character witnesses. Rory Best was mentioned. Ruan Pinar, who obviously used to play for, for Ulster, was mentioned. Um, and so too was Leah McCourt, who was a good friend of Paddy Jackson's. And she is a MMA fighter, a very well-known professional one in Northern Ireland. And none of them um, gave evidence. Now, Rory Best did attend court and he said that he was directed to um, to go to court and to sit in on her evidence. Um, and again, I just throw back to that word, may. At this point, it wasn't confirmed whether or not Rory Best was going to give evidence. Like you mentioned, he wasn't uh, in the end. And for whatever reason we don't know but again it wasn't confirmed and it was strange to see them sitting in the public uh, gallery watching what was going on but again you have to remember that the public gallery was open to the public so he was entitled to go in there for whatever uh, reason uh, he, he, he wanted to be there but I did think that it was just a distraction and an unnecessary one Is it in your experience is that is that something that happens very often where uh, a character witness is advised to go and get both sides of the story before they're called as a character to actually attend the trial 
Yeah, no, it's not. And and I thought it was peculiar that we didn't get the um, reason for it. After the huge Ferrari that happened, I mean, it dominated newspapers and conversation as to why Rory Best was there in the first instance. And um, Right into the Ireland-France game, which was that weekend, there the first you go. round of the Six Nations. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. Um, I suppose that's maybe another reason, just the, the Six Nations and the fact that Ireland were doing so well as to why there was so much focus on this trial. But that's that's for another day. But I just, I just felt that um, it took them too long to come back and actually explain they could have very easily if he had been directed and I've no reason to think that he wasn't but if he had been directed by uh, legal counsel to come in and watch proceedings then why not say that from the offset and pull out that fire straight away it took two days from memory uh, for them to clarify that uh, for the men and women of the jury and then they didn't end up hearing from, from Rory Best but the whole notion of calling a character witness uh, in your defence is alien to me as well I've never seen that happening down in Dublin for example in similar cases uh, that I've covered somebody may give a character reference after the event post-conviction and that would be used then as the judge um, in mitigation uh, for example you may remember uh, the furore over the uh, Tom Humphreys sentence hearing when some high profile characters had lended testimonies in mitigation um, and that's a character reference that's the only time I would have seen something similar happening in this jurisdiction He hasn't been seen since week one in court Rory Best hasn't no I, I never laid eyes on him after that okay. anyway um, I will move on and obviously a big part of, of the trial and the, the were the numbers the numbers that were actually so 58 days ago it began 59 now uh, 42 days it sat um, the jurors there were 11 in total at the end 12 to begin with uh, deliberation of 3 hours and 45 minutes 30 witnesses 10 of whom were police officers one of whom was a taxi driver four of, four of whom were defendants and finally the now 21 year old female complainant who spent a total of 8 days on the stand Rosanna 8 days seems a long time why was she so long on the stand? Well, I think one of the important things is that there were five legal teams. So she had five different barristers to answer questions to. So she had the prosecution and then four defendants who, or four defendants barristers who cross-examined her. And that is why it took so long. And also this trial was, like, it was so persnickety. You know, there was so many things that were just dragged over, over and over and again. And there was bits that they would, like, um, I remember in particular Blaine McElroy's defence barrister, he came back over the same points with her over and over again asking for the same information. But just on that point, this witness was treated as a vulnerable witness and there are specific measures that are put in place when a witness is considered vulnerable. Um, we all know that there was a large royal blue curtain drawn across the witness box and that the only people that were in her direct line of vision would be the judge, the men and women of the jury and the barristers. She wouldn't actually be able to see from her, from where she was sitting in the witness box she wouldn't be able to see the four men sitting side by side in the dock which is in the centre of the courtroom she also wouldn't have been able to see uh, those who are in the public gallery or the press now there was a, a camera mounted in front of the witness box that was transmitting um, a, a live video feed onto a large screen beside the dock so they would have been able and indeed we were able to see um, what she looked like uh, her expressions uh, her body language uh, throughout but another measure just touching on that point uh, another measure when dealing with a vulnerable 
witness. The legislation states that this vulnerable witness under cross-examination um, must not be answered the same thing over and over again, that it must be as swift as possible okay. while still allowing the defence to put forward whatever questions they see fit and that it must not be aggressive or too confrontational. These are all provided for in the legislation in Northern Ireland. Um, in her time on the stand, eight days in total, and then thereafter, she remained in court. Again, something that surprised me and, and actually only became aware of yesterday was her her silent presence in court throughout, Rosanna. Yeah, so just before the jury would file in um, every day, that you'd hear over the loudspeakers um, like a ringing phone. And once this phone connected, you knew that she was then listening. And so she was sitting in a, in a witness room um, somewhere behind the courtroom itself and she was listening and she was watching for the entire the entire trial. Um, and it was, it was, so her presence was tangible in that way because it was announced every single day to everyone in the courtroom. And to jog around in the timeline, we know uh, from the police press conference yesterday how she received the news. Because she was again present in the in the Belfast Crown Court. Yeah, so there was a police officer who said that she had spoken to her um, after the verdict was delivered and that she was um, disappointed and that she was upset. Um, but I think the police officer went on to say that she didn't regret making the co- making the complaint in the first place. Um, but after that, there was nothing nothing more said of her reaction, um, and she wasn't seen again. And. Um, she is entitled to lifelong anonymity so whether she will ever be publicly known um, and I know that's something that her her anonymity has been compromised in several ways. We'll come on to anonymity in, in a moment but before all that I want to talk to you about the fact that Belfast is a very small town and a lot of people know a lot of people that are involved in the trial. Rosanna, the routines that were taken by the families and by the defendants and by the complainant herself, we've, we've spoken about her. Talk to us about how the families came and went. So Jackson, always flanked by his family, parents, sister, brother, best friend, in the photos with him. And I think that's important because you could see he had this support network behind him of a family. And this re- they again enforced the the perception of him that was being put across in court that he is like you know he likes to draw he likes to mime to rap videos he loves hanging out with his family enjoying his friends company and that's what he said over and over again when I relax I hang out with my family and there's the proof you see him walking in every single day with his family but the others were always alone so Blaine would walk in by himself or McElroy's parents would follow behind or go in front or sorry Roy Harrison's um, family would always be his parents were never in the photos with them but they were always there too and Stuart Olding as well his his family were always there but they didn't feature in the photos and I think that has to be a conscious decision whether it was on the part of the defence or the defendants themselves whether they wanted their family in the public eye uh, Frank it has been a big toll for all the families Yes and just speaking generally these cases are always very difficult. Um, I saw a headline in one of the newspapers today to say no winners and I think that's probably a a good reflection on how things 
always pan out in these cases. Um, they're very difficult to cover, but that's my job. Uh, you know, I'm long enough doing it and you do become uh, detached from the, the, these cases. You have to be. You have to approach them in a professional light. But I always look at, take for example, you mentioned how long she spent in the witness box. I mean, that was clearly a very difficult and distressing experience for her. She was a very impressive witness. She conducted herself very well in the box and she became visibly upset on a number of occasions when she was relaying the allegations that um, she made against the boys. But you have to remember that this must have been equally as difficult for the four men who were sitting in the centre of the courtroom in a dock, side by side, day in, day out, having their personal lives uh, laid bare for all to see and hear and having these very serious allegations being made against them. Allegations that they strongly denied and allegations that they were eventually acquitted of. It's a very emotive um, type of a process. The fact that the public gallery was open to the public and the, the fact that it wasn't held in camera added to that because you had people that were coming up that had no connection with anybody involved in the case but just had um, an interest in it. Um, two Ulster uh, rugby fans uh, were there just you know, had a day off and came down to watch what was going on. I mean, they didn't lend their support one way or another when I was speaking to them. But there was clearly a lot of interest in this and there were flashes. It it almost became theatrical. It almost became like a sporting event, particularly towards the end, whereby you may remember that um, during one of the closing uh, speeches, um, there was a spontaneous uh, round of applause that everybody in the courtroom would have been aware uh, took place. So it was very emotive and very difficult for all parties and again like I mentioned that headline is quite fitting the boys may have been acquitted but it's hard to see how their lives will go back to what they once were she's gone through this whole process as well she's disappointed and upset by the outcome but she doesn't regret like Rosanna said coming forward and making that complaint but again there there really are no winners in a case like this Obviously a word that has been um, prevalent throughout this case and and surely in the outcome as well has been inconsistencies and the judge was very clear on in her direction to the jury on the inconsistencies as she saw them and she outlined them at the tail end of last week. She did. On a number of occasions, actually, she returned to inconsistencies. And in my experience, there are always inconsistencies. When it's one person's word or view against another's, and there are always going to be differing accounts, inconsistencies in those accounts. And even more so when it's one person's word against four others. So there were inconsistencies in the initial account that she gave to friends Mm -hmm. and to doctors and to the police. And the final version of events that she gave when she came uh, before the court. And the judge told the jurors um, that not to look too much into inconsistencies because um, you know what one person uh, might say to a certain person and then she may give a differing account to another person that doesn't necessarily mean that she is lying that they have to look at other evidence in relation to the differing accounts then between the uh, four uh, defendants and there were many take for example um, Rory Harrison and Paddy Jackson both said that back at this after party in, in Jackson's home in South Belfast that the woman was staring at and fixated with Paddy Jackson throughout that's what they said Blaine McElroy then said that she was trying it on with everybody and that she even tried to kiss him at one point which would suggest that she wasn't just solely fixated on Paddy Jackson that's a difference in account but the judge did remind the jurors and went at great lengths to do so to say that alcohol is obviously a factor in people's perceptions on night out you and I might go out and have a stack of pints tonight and if we meet our friends the next day and we're talking about something that happened the night before our our accounts may be skewed and completely different and she said to take that into account that 
that alcohol plays a factor. Uh, trauma may play a factor in inconsistencies when um, a victim of, of sexual violence comes forward initially to make a statement. And she said that it did, that she hadn't slept for 30 hours when she went into this um, sexual assault referral clinic in North Belfast. And she said that she was being bombarded with um, very difficult questions and she was going through a very intrusive uh, physical forensic examination. The prosecution claimed that's why she had actually made these um, inconsistencies while the defence claimed no, she was lying and that's why uh, her story didn't stack up. We uh, we mentioned <clears throat> the issue of anonymity for the complainant and uh, this was something that was addressed by the solicitor for Paddy Jackson uh, Joe McVeigh on the 6 o'clock news yesterday evening speaking to Keelan Shanley. This is what he said. Listen, it's common knowledge the name of this young lady and if I was this young lady and if I were her parents I would be absolutely appalled. They were given assurances before this trial would have commenced that that young woman's uh, identity would be kept secret. It's impossible to do that when you've got an open court filled to the brim with members of the public for nine solid weeks where her name is used openly throughout the trial. These are the types of issues that young women intend to raise tomorrow in a protest and I would entirely agree with them. The the safeguards that that young woman thought were in place to protect her identity, they were non-existent. And our system here in the north currently pays lip service to those types of protections. The system in the south is the way it should go at the very least. The safeguards that that young woman thought were in place uh, did nothing to protect her, in the words of uh, Joe McVeigh. Um, I suppose, again, this is back to Belfast, the geography, the people that know... You were saying earlier on, Rosanna, the fact that her name was read out in court on so many different occasions. It is difficult to protect anonymity in this case. Yeah, absolutely. I actually am confused by what he means by the safe, like safeguarding procedures because anyone could walk into that courtroom for five minutes and hear her name and then go do whatever they wanted with it. And yes, the police said that they're going to be investigating the people who may have named her on social media. But I have a lot of friends in Belfast. They all know who she is. They know all the details of her lives. And Belfast is small. And like, I mean, this is such a huge issue. And especially like, Frank, you've covered so many rape cases in the South. But like, most women I think it's fair to say here don't choose to waive their right to anonymity after the court if there has been a guilty conviction and that's the only chance they would have it and most of them don't and so I don't know it's so hard to think whether like to compare the two it's I think the south the system we have is much it's safer for the complainant because as we've seen here she was outed and she can't really return to normal life in Belfast and like they all this crowd of people go to the same clubs the same bars they have the same groups of friends it's just like schools in Dublin where you have a group of private schools and they all intermingle and it's the same up there and it's going to be so difficult Frank how is it different in the south just for people who are listening and are are, are maybe a little unclear on exactly how it's different in the two jurisdictions well the biggest difference is obviously the fact that the four defendants were um, we were allowed to identify Mm -hmm. them and name them in our reports Um, that wouldn't be the case 
down here unless there was a conviction and then you could only identify somebody if by doing so you're not identifying uh, the victim um, unless the victim would like to um, waive his or her um, right to anonymity. Um, so clearly that's a that's a big difference and that's what brought all of the TV trucks and all of the reporters up to Belfast Crown Court for the last nine weeks. Also cases would be held in camera um, which means the public gallery is is uh, closed off. Um, only reporters are there and they're obviously um, they have to abide by certain um, restrictions. Um, not identifying the complainant and not identifying it goes further than that. You can't identify or you can't um, describe any sort of detail that would maybe lead somebody to identifying this uh, person like an address for example mm-hmm. or what they studied in college of course. Um, what part of the world they're living in now uh, those kind of things. You're just giving people um, more dots that they can um, you know uh, join up and possibly identify a complainant. I think the biggest difficulty in this case in that particular issue um, the issue about identifying her and outing her is the fact that the public gallery was open because people were live tweeting from the public gallery until they were instructed to put their phones uh, away. I saw the woman's name on social media as she was identified. Um, I saw people attaching the wrong name uh, to her which gives um, uh, you know a rise to a whole other level of difficulties and and it's wrong. It, it is a disgusting element of the trial. I think the way things are conducted down here are better um, in the sense that I do think that the four defendants are should be entitled to anonymity as well un- unless there is a conviction for the reasons that I've that I've outlined and I think the public should be prevented from from going into these cases I mean I know justice has to be seen to be heard and uh, that's the function that the likes of myself and Rosanna have played over the past nine weeks Just on that sorry I just think like sitting in there and literally anyone walking in off the street it turned it into spectacle because people weren't coming in for a lot of people wouldn't come in for the full time they would come in for a day or like you said if he had a day off and it just it it felt like theatre sometimes and I know that sounds crude and crass but that that's how it was almost perceived like there was a woman I was, spe- I was speaking to who said she'd been there and she was going to get t-shirts saying Stuart Olding innocent March 2018 made and she had no connection to the family she was just someone who'd come to walk in and so people got so invested in the case and in the trial but it I don't know. I, I found it very odd how many people were filtering in and out. And also for the defendants who had these people then watching them and their families, observing them and then doing who knows what with that information. And it's, I don't know, I, th- I thought it was, it was strange. Um, the judge's charges and directions on consent, obviously like... Um a cornerstone of the entire trial is the issue of consent. The judge's charges are they must prove that the complainant did not consent and that Mr Jackson did not reasonably believe that she consented. Okay, I'm going to read for you the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's definition of consent. So the first question they ask is what is rape? Rape is sex without consent. The case this case in which they're talking about this particular case highlights the need for all those engaged in sexual activity to ensure that their partner is consenting as was stated submission is not consent a person does not have to yell or call out for help a person may be frozen all of these are normal and real responses they're not consent consent involves active agreement anything less is unacceptable consent did form a cornerstone of the entire proceedings Rosanna um on the subject of consent and the directions the judge gave, there were clear parameters that she wanted the jury to adhere to. Yeah, so you saw 
you, when she was giving her directions, it became very clear just how high the hurdle of proof was for the jury to have to believe that Patrick Jackson knew that this woman wasn't consenting and that he reasonably believed it. And, I mean, the thing is, the the woman had said that she had verbally, physically said no and that nothing about her body language said yes. And yet... Patrick Jackson said he believed that she was consenting and truly that's what he said he believed it and so when it comes down to this it is a he said she said but it's not quite who does the jury believe it's what can they prove and with the burden like the burden of proof is always on the prosecution so it was if they didn't if they weren't certain of it if they weren't sure then it had to be it had to be innocent Frank why is the burden of proof so high in this case? Well, it's it's high for a very good reason. These are very serious uh, criminal offences that the um, Paddy Jackson and Stuart Holding were, were facing rape charges. I mean, you know, their maximum penalty for a rape charge on conviction is a lifetime behind bars. And that reflects how serious um, an offence it is. Um, so I, I agree that the, the, the threshold and the hurdle that you spoke of um, and the onus that's on the prosecution is is high. And, and I do I do think that's proper order um, and it is up to them to to prove their case um, an accuser must prove their case beyond uh, a reasonable doubt the um, four defence teams um, were under no obligation to cross-examine they were under no obligation to call witnesses the defendants were under no obligation uh, to take the stand and um they all decided to, and that was widely reported. They all took the stand, and the judge said consequences f- um, flowed from that. And she was speaking about their good character. She said people of good character who take the stand, their evidence tends to be uh, more credible. Clearly, the reverse could have been argued if they decided not to take the stand. But again, they were under absolutely no obligation um, to defend uh, this case. It was up to the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And clearly, uh, the jurors, having only uh, deliberated for three hours and 45 minutes, decided that they hadn't reached uh, that threshold. Speaking of the deliberations and the verdict, we've heard at the start of this podcast Rosanna and her perception of that moment when the uh, foreman of the jury stands up and reads out the verdict. From your own perception, um, obviously after such an incredibly long trial, a huge moment and obviously something that the entire courtroom is waiting on tenterhooks to receive. Yeah, I've been in this position many times where there has been a high profile trial and word filters through the building that a verdict is imminent. And, you know, as, as a journalist and as somebody uh, covering these cases, clearly you, you need to be objective and you need to be detached and you need to look at everything and just give a fair and, um, and an accurate portrayal of what's happening in court. But um, your, your emotions get the better of you when it comes through because you've invested so much time in something. It was the same, for example, when the jury came back in the trial of Graham Dwyer, which went on for 46 days and I sat through every day of that. They came back after seven and a half hours. Interestingly, they came back this week three years ago was when the uh, Graham Dwyer uh, jury came back with its guilty uh, verdict and seven and a half hours I remember sitting in the media room when we got word that the verdict was was on the way uh, in courtroom 13 and and we were all surprised that they had come back so quickly three hours and 45 minutes to me given the um, um, the duration of the trial the amount of witnesses that were called you mentioned numbers there there were over 30 witnesses called uh, lots of evidence to get through lots of statements to get through text messages forensic evidence I was 
very surprised when they came back. Um, I was so confident that they wouldn't come back yesterday that I had actually stepped outside court and I was preparing a report to send back uh, to my news desk to say that deliberations were resuming and and uh, I'd send a text to my boss to say, you know, I'm going to file a report here and it'll be copied then for the rest of the day because, you know, I'm not going to be filing voice reports just to say that they're still uh, deliberating. And then I remember just noticing a flurry of activity just inside the, the doors of Laganside Courthouse. Um, the canteen is on the ground floor and that's where the four defendants and um, their families and friends and members of the public gallery had nipped down for a cup of tea or a bite to eat. And when I walked in the front door, I just heard the scraping of chairs in the canteen, um, people dashing towards the two elevators, which take forever for some reason to get to the ground floor. There was a queue going into them. I decided the, the quickest route was upstairs. Paddy Jackson felt that was also the quickest route. He was just ahead of me. He opened the double doors going into courtroom 12 to take a seat in the dock before he did. His mother, who was a, who was a tiny woman, she's been there uh, throughout the nine weeks supporting her son. Uh, she just patted him on the back, almost reassuringly trying to comfort him uh, before he went in and learned his fate. And as it turned out, just because of the way the um, indictment was laid out, uh, Paddy Jackson was indeed the first person to learn his fate. Um, the jury foreperson was asked, um, had they reached a unanimous verdict in relation to the first count, which was the rape allegation against Paddy Jackson? And she said, not guilty. And then it filtered down, right down to uh, the last accused, uh, Rory Harrison, who was facing two charges and he was acquitted on both counts. Now, there wasn't much of a reaction, to be honest, from the public gallery and Rosanna and I, from where we were sitting, would only have been able to see the four defendants uh, standing in the dock and we would have been looking at them from behind. So it was very hard to gauge their initial reactions. But certainly tears flowed from the um, from the eyes of some of their uh, family members and outside then you could see the relief etched across their faces. Rory Harrison was the first person I saw when I walked outside of the courtroom. Uh, he was being mobbed by family and friends. Paddy Jackson stepped out of a side room with his lawyer. I noticed a handshake between himself and Brendan Kelly who has represented him throughout. And then again separately, one by one, uh, they all left uh, the courthouse. Blaine McElroy didn't stop to address the media. He was the first out the door. He was with uh, his legal team and his family and he just walked on by uh, through a side gate. There were two gates, a side gate and a front gate. Paddy Jackson was next out with his uh, solicitor and he walked through the front gate. The media were gathered to the side and there was a scramble to get across and it was decided it would be better if Paddy came to us and he gave that statement. Um, uh, Rory Harrison then was the next man out and he didn't want to speak to the media. He left the courthouse on his own and he again left through that front gate. And I felt a little bit sorry for Rory Harrison because he didn't want to speak to the media, he didn't want to be snapped. Um, but the um, the exit that he chose was leading onto a very busy road and just as he approached the lights to cross the road, that little green man turned red. So he was standing there for what must have seemed like forever, just staring at that little red man as the photographers caught up to him. People got their shots, people were asking him questions, he didn't respond. The little green man comes on and Rory Harrison walks out of out of the area and then Stuart Olding came out maybe an hour later with his solicitor. He had prepared a statement and written it himself but he didn't deliver it to the media um, and he didn't take any questions because his solicitor said that emotions were high and they didn't want to take any questions and he read out a statement then on his behalf. On that we have um, as you mentioned or alluded to there statements from Paddy Jackson and from Stuart Olding. So Paddy Jackson did address the media himself um, initially very very briefly thanked his legal team his family and moved on to allow his uh, his representative his legal representative his solicitor Joe McVeigh this is an edited version of Paddy Jackson's statement on the steps of Belfast Crown Court immediately after the verdict has been read out 
We're grateful to the jury for reaching what was a common sense verdict of not guilty on all counts. Paddy has been consistent in his denials and in his account. Consistency had never been a feature of the complainant's evidence long before she entered the witness box. The prosecution made much of a perceived privileged position provided by virtue of Paddy being an international rugby player. We say that it was this very status as a famous sportsman that drove the decision to prosecute in the first place. Paddy and his parents have paid a heavy price personally, professionally and financially. This price was paid despite the fact that he has never been anything other than entirely innocent. Vile commentary expressed on social media going well beyond fair comment has polluted the sphere of public discourse and raised real concerns about the integrity of the trial process. As for Paddy, his main priority now is to return to work. That means getting back on the rugby pitch and representing his province and his country. Thank you. That's the solicitor for Paddy Jackson, Joe McVeigh, talking uh, on behalf of his client immediately after the verdict was read out at the Belfast Crown Court. Just so I'm clear on that, was that was that written by Paddy Jackson then, Frank? Or do we know? It didn't sound... We don't know is, we is, don't the, know. is okay. the answer. Yeah, no, it, um, it was uh, Paddy Jackson delivered a very brief statement thanking his legal teams and okay. he said that in respect for his employers he wouldn't okay. be answering What we do questions. know is that the words that Paul Dugan read out an hour later when Stuart Holding left the Belfast Crown Court were handwritten or written by Stuart Holding. Uh, this is what he said. I want to acknowledge publicly that though I committed no criminal offence on the evening of the 28th of June 2016, I regret deeply the events of that evening. I want to acknowledge that the complainant came to court and gave evidence about her perception of those events. I am sorry for the hurt that was caused to the complainant. It was never my intention to cause any upset to anyone on that night. I don't agree with her perception of events and I maintain that everything that happened that evening was consensual. There's a five-letter word there that's present in one and not the other, um, which was put to Joe McVeigh later on in on the 6 o'clock news by Keelan Chanley that later asked if, like Stuart Holding, Paddy Jackson was sorry for what had happened and to which he replied that he couldn't speak for Paddy Jackson and that he'd been through a lot. Um, Tonally, they're quite different in terms of what they say. They're very different. And I think, um, and this is my own personal view, I think the statement that was read out on behalf of Stuart Olding, for me, uh, struck um, a better uh, tone in the sense that... um, he, like you've played the clip there, he, um, he, he maintained his innocence throughout, clearly, and he maintained his version of events. And he said that while he didn't agree with her perception of what happened, he claimed any sexual activity that took place between them was consensual. And while he accepted that uh, her perception was different, he didn't agree with it but he was sorry for any hurt uh, that he may have caused uh, that night and and he also said that he regretted um, what happened that night that's not an admission of any wrongdoing at all obviously the man has been uh, acquitted um, 
But then you, you contrast that with the statement that was read out by um, Joe McVeigh on behalf of Paddy Jackson. And we don't know what input, if any, Paddy had in that statement. And it's probably important to note uh, that. But uh, he, he he did seem to um, uh, accuse the public prosecution service of having some sort of a vested interest in, um, in pursuing this prosecution for reasons other than the strength of the case. He seemed to suggest that the reason they did so was because he was a high profile sports person. Obviously, he was Ulster Rugby. Rugby's um, first choice number 10 at the time he had represented his uh, uh, country. Uh, the Public Prosecution Service interestingly responded uh, to this comments by way of a statement afterwards and they said that the, the, they, they stand over the fact that they felt that there was a case to answer, that they tested uh, the evidence and that people that maybe aren't familiar with the process the way that it would work is that this woman would make a complaint to police, the police then are responsible for investigation it they would take statements from her, they would make arrests, they would take statements from suspects, they would gather gather whatever forensic evidence uh, is needed and then they would present this case to the Public Prosecution Service. It's the very same down here, the office is called the Director of Public Prosecution Service and it is he or she uh, who then decides whether or not um, a prosecution should be pursued. They clearly decided that there was a case to answer here and they stood by uh, that decision afterwards. But to suggest that the Public Prosecution Service um, would would pursue this case because of the um, suspect involved, I think is an unfair charge. Rosanna, um, some of the anger there from, well, some of the some of the tone there from Joe McVeigh, I think, potentially based on the, 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 the toll for everybody in this case. Can you take us through what this has meant for each of the defendants in terms of the things that they've had to forego since the initial charges were brought? So Paddy Jackson said um, he has had to stop playing for Ireland and he's not playing for Ulster anymore. He mixed the uh, tour to Chicago where Ireland beat the All Blacks. Um, Stuart Olding isn't playing for Ulster Rugby anymore. Um, and they didn't go into their own the own personal impact on their lives, but more so the career impact. Um and then Blaine McElroy wasn't able to go back and finish his degree in the Life University in Atlanta, Georgia, because he couldn't go back to America. And Rory Harrison came back from Sydney, Australia um, in October of this year to prepare for the trial. And so I suppose it has, it seems to have had a big impact on all of their professional lives. And then there was an indication in some of their defences closing um, how the impact has been on their families and on themselves. And I think... Uh, Jackson's barrister said it was a 20-month blight on the life of his client. Um, Blaine McElroy's barrister said it was he put his it had put his family through the ringer, and then I think that was mentioned again for Olding too the impact on the family. Well, obviously the complainant as well, from what we know, uh, is now 21 years of age, uh, a student in Belfast, and obviously it has to be said as well huge implications for her and, and ramifications for her life um, living in Belfast and obviously processing this verdict. We did mention, of course, that all four defendants were found not guilty of the charges levelled at them. We're going to come back after this. We're going to be joined by Dion Fanning uh, to talk about some of the issues surrounding the case, including the culture um, of, I suppose, sports teams and issues of consent. Back after this. You're listening to the story of the Belfast trial. We're here with Joe's Rosanna Cooney and News Talk's Frank Rainey. And we're now joined also by another uh, Joe journalist, Dion Fanning. Dion, we've been talking about... Uh, many aspects of the case again to return to week one and those initial days where the 
WhatsApps were laid out and it was an insight into the culture of WhatsApp messaging. WhatsApp is a relatively recent phenomenon in terms of how people communicate, but it, it's now all pervasive, right down to, um, to mention a to completely different story, but the, the Tala Lidl, where basically the entire thing broke on WhatsApp. It has become part of all our lives. We all, in this around this table, I'm sure, use WhatsApp, but the culture itself in this instance was shown to be, in the case of the four defendants, incredibly toxic. Yeah, it's a culture that I think also highlighted the difference between what was taking place in the courtroom and which Rosanna and Frank have been talking about and the reaction to what was taking place in the courtroom beyond the courtroom and that the WhatsApp messages were the the point when that line was drawn. And I think that line is kind of, again, came up when the verdict came in because you see the difference from talking to people like Rosanna who were in the court uh, listening to other reporters talking about it saying you know they weren't surprised by the verdict and you see the reaction of online and I think a lot of that is fueled by by the, the WhatsApp messages and, and this sense it gave of uh, of, a, of a group of lads treating a woman you know extremely disrespectfully and I think we can say that I think you know they were cleared of all charges but at at the heart of of their of, at the heart of their version of the night was a woman whose whose interests they weren't really that concerned about, and I think that inflamed a lot of people. Um, and because it's in the context of, of a trial you know, where, where two of them are uncharged for rape, it makes it it, it makes people it makes people angrier. What you do about that culture, what you're supposed to do about that culture, I don't know. I. I I think it, it's common among teams, if I can say that. I think sports teams, I, I know from talking to sports people that nights like this aren't uh, uncommon. That this is uh, a part of it. And it's a curious practice, you know, it's a curious aspect of, of, of nights to people who aren't in sport, but it seems to be an aspect of uh, team uh, mentality that these kind of incidents take place. And I think that's something that it seem is shocking um, to people who aren't in that world. Just just on that, like I think I thought one of the strangest things was like listening in court to these WhatsApp messages and hearing over and over again like Ha- witnesses having to explain what lol meant what like they, a prosecution hired a slang expert to explain spit roast and over and over again you just saw the the difference like the frivolity with which we communicate through WhatsApp it's instant you don't complete your sentences you aren't using grammar you're just throwing out whatever's in your head and never for a second thinking that your parents are going to listen back or whoever's parents are going to listen back to those messages and and yes maybe like I think that was a big point that when you're listening back in court it becomes so clear how different the world of criminal law is to the world of like being young on a night out and that was a big difference it's like a night out culture having to then be explained in court at a frame by frame rate At the same time I think the reaction of online yesterday will say majority the female anger at what's happened and the marches that are happening across the country today in North and South um, would suggest to me that there was one initially 
genuine shock at how callous the behaviour was in terms of the language, but also in terms of something small. For me, that word gentleman that was used earlier in the show, Paddy Jackson presenting himself as a gentleman, of course, and doing gentlemanly things and, you know, writing song, writing or drawing superheroes and generally being a really good guy but then on on the other side he engages by his own admission in a sex act with a woman and doesn't say goodbye to her when she leaves that's not very gentlemanly um, and then the, the, the message but he wasn't themselves. on trial for being a gentleman absolutely that was, but the, thing, that was the problem in this mm. case in many ways and I, I can understand and I agree with an awful lot of the anger uh, but it comes crashing up against what he, as Frank said earlier, he's on trial. You know, a sentence that is a life sentence, uh, and you can agree. And I, you know, that the way they treated this woman was 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 despicable. But alone, that isn't a reason to go to jail for you know ten years, twenty years, whatever. That mm-hmm. has, and that's where the that's where. There's a problem, and I think that's why where the Paddy Jackson solicitor's anger comes from too, because there's now an ongoing trial for them, which is what can they and should and the question is should like people who are saying should they play for Ireland again? I understand that question. I understand because we know more about their lives than than we know more. Let me finish this point. We know more about their lives than we should. No, can right? I? But, but if we knew more about anyone else's lives. Any other professional sports or a lot of professional sports people's lives, I think we would be equally appalled. And that, now we may, maybe we need to do something about that, and we probably do. But I th- that that is the problem. Now I think it's going to be very difficult for them to do what 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 Joe McVeigh wants wants Paddy Jackson to do. But there there is that issue too. But we can accept the findings of the court in full, accept them in full, and also be absolutely horrified by what is what what has been in court what is in, in open court accepted by all the defendants Listen, people got very animated and excited about the text messages and I, I think a lot of people were entrenched in their views one way or the other before a single word was spoken from the witness box and those people are then reluctant to switch on the basis of what they hear in evidence but when it comes to actual evidential value you have to ask yourself yes these text messages were vile they were disgusting they were inappropriate they were very dis- disrespectful towards women in general and the complainant. Um, but you have to ask yourself, what evidential value did they actually have, this uh, Jacome group? Um, people get distracted by that. You'd, you'd have to wonder what emphasis the jurors actually put on the text messages in their deliberations. Fair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, it portrayed these guys as pigs, um, but it's not an, a criminal offence to be derogatory or to be offensive I- I- in any way uh, like that. I don't agree with any of the text messages that were exchanged between these these guys in that in that group they were absolutely horrifying when I heard them but when you take a step back from them you just have to ask yourself did they further anybody's case the prosecution would have said that they gave an interesting insight into these guys but they didn't really prove mm-hmm. any criminal intent no. or any criminal offence I think there's just a there's a point on the on the outrage that's going on right now in terms of I believe her uh, the hashtag that's going on and I think it's it's the manner in which the defence tried to explain her motivation for coming forth with this complaint and what they called 
a series of lies. And that is that she wanted to protect her reputation. And that is where there's this big contradiction between the men who are allowed and they said, oh, it's just boys being boys who go off and say about their spit roast and Bay McElroy saying he pumped a, a pumped a bird with Jacko, which most people would assume means he had sex with her, which he didn't have penetrative sex there. Maybe he had oral sex, I don't know. But... Um, on that she wasn't she, the motivation for her to lie to the police apparently was because she was so terrified that her friends would find out that she had group sex which seems mad that you've got these complete two separate like standards for male and female within this case and that's just accepted of like the thing that of course she, why would how could she bear facing her friends who had seen who might have heard through the eyewitness Dara Florence who may or may not have taken a photo is what the defence suggested that she was worried about and that's supposed to be an entire justification for why she went about this and that itself is for me one of the most sexist things about this whole trial Just, just on, on that point this kind of double standard that I think you're, you're trying to get at and, and it, it's like that's that's unfortunately that's the way society is if a, guy's go, if a guy goes out and hooks up with two or three women he's a legend if a girl goes out and does the same you know there's a different perception of her so that was a double standard that I think was evident throughout uh, as well and an interesting contrast as well was the the way the guys spoke in these groups and the way Blaine McElroy and Rory Harrison spoke to one another contrast that with the conversation that she would have had with her friends I'm not talking about after the alleged um, uh, event but um, beforehand um, in, in the weeks beforehand when she was having a general conversation about rape with her friend and the way she communicates with her friends is completely different to the way the lads communicate in this uh, WhatsApp group and the way Blaine and Rory Harrison had communicated in their group and the way uh, Blaine McElroy had communicated with other uh, friends of his in this juicers group. Completely different. You're listening to the story of the Belfast trial. Um, I'm going to finish up with this quote from Marianne O'Kane, the public prosecutor in the Belfast trial. Anyone who has been a victim of any offence, please do come forward and be assured you will be treated with sensitivity and respect. Do you think that this trial could potentially put people off from coming forward who are alleged victims of sexual violence? Um, I would say yes. I think it could potentially put people off, especially because of the length. So the length of time between that night and the court case and then the court case itself. And it's such a huge chunk of someone's life that then has to be dedicated to this court case, preparation, thinking about it, everything, even that, even hearing the details of the forensic medical examination and also the police investigations and then the assaults on your own character and what your motivations for things are. And so I, I think it potentially could, but I'll also say that the complainant herself said she didn't regret coming forward and making that allegation. And that's important too, because her story was heard. She did get to speak and she was heard and she was listened to for eight days. And so I don't like, I don't know, I think that's that's important too to remember. Another thing that's important to remember is um, what happened yesterday. The court didn't and doesn't have the power to declare that the four defendants were innocent. They were found not guilty. They were acquitted uh, of the charges. And from a legal point of view, what that, what that means is that the jurors felt that the prosecution hadn't proven uh, their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm not suggesting 
any wrongdoing whatsoever. The four men were acquitted. They're free men. They haven't been convicted of any sort of crimes. I'm not making uh, that a suggestion at all. But what I'm what I'm what I'm saying is these are very difficult cases uh, to prosecute. They're very difficult cases for all involved. And I'm speaking uh, generally here. But she was um, a very impressive woman who decided to make that complaint, um, and she was reluctant to initially um, because she felt that they would concoct a story, and that was a claim that the prosecution made uh, to rubbish her claim and that the Ulster Rugby Institution would row in behind her and that she wouldn't be believed and that it wouldn't get anywhere. But despite all that, she said, no, I have to make a complaint because this could have happened to uh, my sister, this could have happened to my friend. So those are her reasons for going forward. And I think, um, yes, okay, she she's upset and disappointed by what happened yesterday. She said that to one of the police officers, but she also said, like Rosanna mentioned, that she didn't regret making her complaint. And I don't think it can be argued that she wasn't treated fairly Um, the opposite is true Uh, the court was very kind to her in the sense that she didn't have to address um, the defendants or or, 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 you know she didn't have eyes on them at any point uh, during the trial she was given the opportunity to watch proceedings and to hear proceedings from afar I think that she was treated um, very kindly by the court and I don't think anybody can argue uh, to the contrary so I suppose time will tell if this will have any effect on people coming uh, forward Um, but certainly she doesn't regret coming forward and the, the implication would be that others shouldn't. I'm grateful to Joe's Rosanna Cooney and Dion Fanning to News Talk's Frank Graney and on sound was Shane Dempsey. You've been listening to the story of the Belfast trial. I've been Paddy McKenna. Thanks for joining us.